Good morning. If you would please turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. It's in the order of worship. You'll also find that on page 984 of the Blue Pew Bibles. I've been preaching through Colossians in uh, uh, an evening series, but I think this is a great passage for here we are in this, this post-Christmas period where we have been concentrating on the incarnation of Christ. Well, we're still focused on that to look at the point. What's the, the, the point, the purpose of Christ's incarnation? So Paul and Timothy, who's helping him out on this, uh, have warned the Colossians in the last passage, in, uh, ending at, at chapter 2, verse 10, to see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. To counter that, they stressed that the fullness of God dwells in Christ bodily, and that because we are united to him, we have been filled in him, him who is the head of all rule and authority, and then in this passage, they tell us what this means for us. Listen carefully. This is God's word, starting at uh, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this great text, for this message of the triumph of Christ. Lord, help us in this time to see what it means for us. We too may rejoice in the great things that Christ has done, that he's done for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Do you know people who are restless, who are always seeking but never finding? Who move from one thing to another but never actually settle? You too sang, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. People like that, to use Paul's earlier metaphor, they have no roots, they have no foundation, so they are susceptible to the latest greatest thing, to being deluded and misled by false teachers. Paul wanted the Colossians to understand who they are in Christ. If we do not comprehend who we are in Christ, we will always be susceptible to false teachers, and we will not have the joy and satisfaction that God intends for us. There's a lot going on in this passage telling us what's true for us in Christ. Because Christ has triumphed at the cross and brought us into new life, rest in him and take your satisfaction in him. In this passage, Paul shows us two main things, the the benefits of the cross and the triumph of the cross. So the first part, the benefits, break down into four parts. 
that we are circumcised in him, that we are buried in him, we are raised and made alive, and that we are forgiven. So Paul says that in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Sort of feels like it comes out of left hand. Why bring up circumcision? Again, we don't know exactly what's going on in, in Colossae. Maybe there are Judaizers who are trying to convince the Gentiles that they first need to be Jews before they can be Christians. Try to make everyone follow the Mosaic law. Paul never addresses that directly, although it's clear when he's writing to the Galatians that he has very strong feelings about this. Since we don't get that here, maybe that's not what's going on. We sort of have to figure out what's going on in Colossae. It's like hearing one side of a phone conversation and trying to figure out what it's about. In Christ, Paul tells us that we have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now, in Scripture, made with hands is a bad thing. Pretty much everything in those days was made by hand, but it's sort of a, a special term in Scripture uh, for idols. Okay? Isaiah condemns Israel when he says that they bow down to the work of their hands to idols they've made. When Daniel, in Daniel 2, interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he sees the mighty statue destroyed by a stone, not cut by human hands. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And it's against this background, this Daniel passage, that Jesus is accused of saying, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. As Jesus is building a temple, he's building his church, not made with hands, he is circumcising with a circumcision, not made with hands, a new circumcision for a new creation. Old circumcision was a sign of the covenant with Abraham, but it was never just about flesh, as we saw in the Old Testament reading. Jeremiah told Israel that in, uh, in chapter 4. It's not about skin, it's about the heart. In Romans 2, Paul says, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. In Romans 8, he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So Paul says here in Colossians, we have been circumcised by putting off the body of flesh so that we can live instead by the Spirit. By this Christ-worked circumcision, we have been freed from the body of the flesh, from our sinful nature. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. By the circumcision of Christ, we are freed from that sinful nature. It has been cut away. Then he goes on to say in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. This verse makes perhaps the clearest connection in Scripture between the sign of circumcision and the new covenant sacrament of baptism. As circumcision was a sign of entry into the old covenant, baptism is a sign of entry into the new covenant. Even better, it's a sign of our union with Christ. We don't usually think of death and burial as good news, but it is when they are with Christ, 
we are with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. There are some who teach that the water of baptism itself has some saving effect. The next clause shows that it's false. Baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. It's not by the baptism. It's by the faith, as always, that we're saved. Both of Abraham's sons received the sign of circumcision, but only Isaac received the blessing. Then as now, the the sign, circumcision then and baptism now, points to what must be received by faith. Faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. Now, we want to hurry on to the raised part, but notice how buried in baptism, baptized into his death, connects to circumcisions putting off the body of flesh. It was precisely circumcision's body of flesh, that sinful nature, that we bury in the washing of baptism. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 166, asks, how is our baptism to be improved by us? It's taken there as a given that we need to. What does that mean? What does it mean to improve our baptism? There's a parallel here with the commandment from Deuteronomy 10 that Rex read for us to circumcise your heart. Every male Israelite would have been circumcised, but there was still work for them to do. Every member of the church has been baptized as a child or as an adult, but there's still work for us to do. Like circumcision, baptism was the starting point. The Catechism answers, how is our baptism to be improved by us? In short, all our lives, when tempted, when we are present present at the administration to another, by serious and thankful consideration of the nature and ends of it, the privileges and benefits, humbly considering our failings, by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all the other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace and by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those that have therein given up their names to Christ and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same spirit into one body. Pretty much all of that catechism answer is what is based on what Paul says in various places. But his emphasis here in Colossians is what God has done in Christ. You have been baptized in him. You were also raised. It's a done deal. When I go to Costco, I wave my card at the door and walk in. They don't ask me to pay again because I've already paid. I'm a member now. The fee is paid already. Here's what Paul is reminding us. The fee has been paid. Christ has paid for you. You lack nothing. So we move to verse 13. Paul gets more personal. And you, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. In the original Greek, it's even more pointed, and you dead 
being. In the second clause, Paul has invented a word. He needed to invent a word because one did not exist for made alive together with. And then he emphasizes you again. And you dead, God made you alive together with him. God raised him and God made him alive and with, it, and with him he has raised us and made us alive. The cutting off of the body of flesh, the burial of that body is old news. You are raised now and made alive anew. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Of course, it's not unexpected to think Gentiles when you hear uncircumcision. That was the world. It was Jews and the uncircumcised. So there, because he's talking to Gentiles who, to whom circumcision was extremely weird, that, that thought is there. But I think the bigger picture seems to be you were dead under the condemnation of the law and the power of your flesh, your sinful nature. That sinful nature was in control of you. You were living in the flesh, by the flesh, not by the Spirit. You were outside of Christ and you were without hope. The subject in the passage changes here in verse 13 from us to God. And it's really important. God made us alive with him. God made you alive with him. You were dead. You have been made alive in Christ. You are a new person. The old has passed away. Sin no longer has power over you. God has made you alive together with Christ, having forgotten all our trespasses. As we've been going through Colossians, we've seen that he keeps coming back to this uh, this theme, this point of fullness and filling. There's another theme that is also running through this that's maybe not quite as obvious, of completeness. Here's a few of the things that he says. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by, all, by him all things were created. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that is in everything. He might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. For in him all, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. But all those alls are for you. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. 
as much as Christ made all things, as much as all the fullness of God dwells in him, so are all our sins forgiven. Every one, the great and the small, they are all forgiven. By verse 14, God's canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He's wiped the record clean like wiping a slate. It's not filed away for later. There's no second copy. It's not on backup someplace. It's gone. In the words of Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Where did this record come from? In the original, it's handwritten, like an IOU. It's the record of sins and trespasses against the Creator's law, against the legal demands that got longer and longer every day of our lives. If we attempt to pay it off by good works, it just keeps getting longer. And no other sinner could help us. We had no hope of ever paying off that debt. Only God could help us. He did not forgive part of the debt. He canceled the whole thing. He made it null and void by nailing it to the cross. This is a powerful picture. Over Jesus' head was the placard saying, King of the Jews. But imagine next to that sign, millions and millions of streamers, adding machine paper, CVS receipts, each with an account of the debt of a particular sinner. Jesus did not die on the cross for some particular unknown mass. He did so for individuals. He knows his sheep. His obedience was credited to the individual accounts of those who are his. Their debt has been canceled. Their records have been wiped clean. Is yours by faith in Christ? you have been counting on something of yourself for salvation, your baptism, or your church attendance, your charity work, your all-around goodness, hear this warning. None of those is sufficient. They're all, they're all fine things, but they will not cancel the debt of your sins. That cancellation will only be yours through faith in Christ alone to the exclusion of all else. Not part of your trust in him and part in yourself, but you must realize that he is your only hope and you must turn to him alone, recognizing your sinfulness. Last, we come to the triumph of the cross. Verse 15, there's, in the original, there's not a new sentence, but it continues from the previous. One of the things that you see is when Paul gets rolling, he just keeps rolling, and he's just writing and talking as fast, and imagine trying to be the guy keeping up with him when he gets on a roll. So this, this record of debt, Paul says he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and in so doing, disarming the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In gaining forgiveness for us, Jesus also disarmed the rulers and authorities that Paul wrote off 
back in chapter 1, verse 16. In other words, Satan and his army. There's an old saying that clothes make the man. Probably a saying started by Brooks Brothers, somebody like that. Part of a judge's power comes from his robe. Without the robe, he's just another guy. When Aaron was dying, Moses took off his high priestly garments, took those off Aaron and put them on Eleazar, who became the new high priest. What's translated here as disarm comes from being stripped as Aaron was. Think of a soldier being demoted, his stripes torn off his sleeve. In Jesus, God stripped the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. In other words, he stripped them naked in public to open shame. He defeated them publicly, visibly, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The demonic rulers and authorities could not keep him in the grave. They were shown to be powerless. But God did more than just defeat them. Triumph in a Greco-Roman context, is not just defeat. It points to a victory parade when a general has made a crushing defeat of an enemy army. The entire city would turn out for the parade as the victorious general parades his captives to the cheers of his people. In Christ, God has stripped the authorities and powers naked and put them to open shame in a victory parade In Christ, God has defeated his enemies and our enemies. We should proclaim the glories of our victorious Lord in triumphing over God's enemies. But there's a danger if we take it as a report from a distant land. It's not like the British election results and, you know, the voting in North Yorkshire. This is, is, as they say, news you can use. If our understanding of the universe must be based on Christ, and it must, our understanding of ourselves must be as well. We cannot know who we are if we do not know who we are with respect to Christ. Are you his enemy or is he your Lord? If he is your Lord, then this passage shows you who and what you are in him. If you have been circumcised with the circumcision not made by hands, you have been freed from the flesh, the sinful nature. If you've been baptized in him, you have also been buried in him. The old self is dead. But if you are in Christ, you have also been raised in him through faith already. You you who once were dead and under condemnation have been made alive and your sins, all of them, have been forgiven. These are not trivial announcements. This is not interesting news. This is not intriguing news. This is good news. You cannot respond as if it's merely interesting. You have been freed from your sinful nature. Praise God. The record of your sins has been wiped away. Hallelujah. 
You were dead, now you are alive. Amen. What are you going to do? Proclaim to those still under bondage the glories of the one who freed you. Remember that you are in Christ, that you have been raised with Christ. Because Christ has triumphed at the cross and brought us into new life, rest in him and take satisfaction in him. If you're being in Christ, your salvation in him shapes how you see the world, its attractions will grow strangely dim instead because Christ has triumphed at the cross and brought us into new life. Rest in him and take your satisfaction in him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, it is easy here in this place in this morning to rejoice in the triumph of Christ. We pray by your Holy Spirit that we would do so during the week as the difficulties of our lives, as the difficulties of, these wor- of this world weigh on us. Remind us that we are in Christ who has triumphed at the cross, that he's taken our sins. We are united to him one in whom are all things. Lord, give us joy in that knowledge. Strengthen us in our faith in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.